You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series, Current Issues, sharing a Christian response to the global financial crisis. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. An out-of-work money manager in California loses a fortune and wipes out his family in a murder-suicide. A 90-year-old Ohio widow shoots herself in the chest as authorities arrive to evict her from the modest house she has called home for 38 years. In Massachusetts, a housewife who had hidden her family's mounting financial crisis from her husband sends a note to the mortgage company warning, by the time you foreclose on my house, I'll be dead. She then shot herself to death, leaving an insurance policy and a suicide note on the table. My name is Douglas Jacoby, and I would like to share a Christian response to the current global financial crisis. Those news points come from 2008. Now it's 2009. Things have continued in many parts of the world, if not most, to go in a very concerning direction. I don't believe anyone would say that crisis is an overreaction. It's the correct word. In fact, during one recent week, global stock markets tumbled $7 trillion. This is really affecting the entire world. In the last couple of months, I've made trips to a number of cities in Italy, uh, the Ukraine, uh, New York, uh, Croatia, Lebanon, and so forth. And I, I can absolutely affirm everyone is talking. Everyone has thoughts, and certainly everyone is affected. And even if you're not hurting personally through this time of financial challenge, we're all affected indirectly. My wife and I know a lot of people who've lost their jobs. In our church, many people have lost employment. And we've all been affected by rising and unpredictable prices. And there's every indication this may continue for a while. And it's important, therefore, to think it through from a biblical perspective. How should many women of faith respond to this financial crisis? The truth is, the crisis can affect faith, too. We wonder, well, is God going to take care of me or not? Am I doing okay with Him? And on top of that, the crisis affects marriage. The experts say that money matters are one of the most important, if not the number one reason, that marriages fall apart. And this is complicated. I don't come to you with any easy answers, facile solutions to (laughs) what is going on. It's complicated and it involves multiple agencies. It's hard to nail anyone down. Last week, I questioned a medical charge. I received a bill in the mail. I had had a a scan, an MRI. And so I called radiology and I said, well, I already paid for this. Why another bill? It's smaller, but why the extra bill? And they said, well, uh, you need to talk to the doctors. So I called to the referring physician. And they said, well, actually, you need to talk to the MRI center at the hospital where the scan was done. So then I called them. 
And they said, well, actually, it's not us. It's radiology, the people I had talked to three phone calls before. In other words, I was trapped in a vicious loop. You know, I think this is very similar to what's going on. There's so many agencies involved, and it's so easy to shift the blame and say, well, it's not really me. I mean, I'm in the loop, but I'm not the best person to talk to. Talk to the other guy. And we're not going to solve the financial crisis in one podcast. That's a guarantee. But we can get a biblical perspective. And if you already have a biblical perspective, perhaps this lesson will sharpen your awareness and give you some more thoughts. Well, how are we responding personally to the challenges? For some, anxiety is all there is. There's no solution. It's just sweating it out. And of course, we would be wise to to give our burdens to the Lord, cast all of our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7. Instead, we see so much finger-pointing. In my country, the United States, the very conservatives will say, well, it's the liberals. The liberals say, well, it's it's the results of the policies of the conservatives. Many citizens say it's all the government's fault. And I'm sure government people are saying, well, we can't be held to blame. The citizens have made decisions, enacting them by law. Some people blame God. And others, it's the devil. It's Satan. Some countries where I travel, people say it's America's fault. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, although it's, it's not so simple. And then in some places, it's Satan and America's fault because America is the Satan. <laughs> Businessmen think it's the consumers. I was in a business this week, and I spoke to one of the managers. I said, what do you think's going on? And how is this affecting your business? And he said, well, we've been very affected. Basically, people have been living beyond their means. And so, business, we're looking at the consumers, and yet the consumers are saying, well, it's the businessmen. They're greedy with their golden parachutes. You know, the truth is complex, and it's probably a mixture of all these things. Another response is simply hopelessness, sometimes in the form of disengagement. It's easy to just not think about it. To keep your head down. Just keep on going. Don't think about it. Hopelessness sometimes is nothing that actually we, we can avoid. Because in some parts of the world, people have no choice but to think about the challenges. Currently, Zimbabwe's inflation rate is over 400%. Zimbabwe is a southern African nation that's very challenged. Lately, not only by a cholera epidemic and by a dictator who will not step aside, but by a a worsening economy. In fact, a few months ago, one week, the inflation rate was over 200 million percent. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine having a million dollars yesterday, and then today it's hardly even worth a dollar? Some parts of the world, I, I go to my local bank, and the teller I normally talk to is from Zimbabwe. We're always talking about government whenever I, I visit the bank. But there's some, very, uh, there's some other responses that are very interesting. This one, let me tell you who said it after I read it. This man says, this crisis shows us this. I believe there is God's justice in action in what's going on here, and we haven't seen the end of it. We're going toward a one-world bank and a one-world monetary system. And if you believe the Word of God and you read Revelations, you will see clearly what's being spelt out. And we are in the end times. And those are actually the words 
of James Bidgood, who is an Australian member of parliament. And I wonder how many people are looking at what's going on and, and then turning to the Bible and trying to make some kind of connection. It's good to turn to the Bible, but I, I can assure you <laughs> what we see here is not predicted in Scripture, except the prediction that people will be greedy. It's very easy to give up, to be hopeless, either ignoring what's going on or rationalizing it with an attitude, que sera, sera. And yet there's a different sort of aloofness, a way to ignore the issues. Some of us are actually doing fine through the financial challenges. And then our temptation is to say, well, you know, God's blessing me. Or, I must be a pretty good person. Or, you know, I'm quite uh, good with money. And so I'm not being affected. But you know, it ain't necessarily so. <laughs> Personally, there's the possibility that some of your good fortune just comes down to chance. Ecclesiastes 9.11 says time and chance happen to them all. Yes, we believe in providence. Yes, we believe there's a God. And yet, not everything is predictable. Recently, I read a fabulous book on the subject of probability. It was called Black Swan. And I would recommend that. But moving away from the mathematical and the physical, how about the Bible? How about the book of Job? What do we see in this 42-chapter part of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament? We see that bad things do happen to good people, and not necessarily because they temporarily lapsed and did wrong. In addition, we could be going through a test. God could be testing our faith. James 1, 2 to 15. And even if he didn't custom design the financial crisis for you and me, it could still be a sort of test. That is, how are we responding? Our characters are revealed in times like this. And one other reaction I've seen, and I saw this on TV, an eminent evangelist said on television that this nation, the United States, is being afflicted by this financial challenge because of a lack of faith. That is, if we just had more faith, everything would be fine. Now, I'm not sure that's even true. More faith? Or is it less greed? And besides, is it really a blessing if God gives us everything we want? Oh, I know in the Old Testament, Israel was blessed physically. It was a much more material covenant. But there's no such covenant between God and United States, Britain, Australia, or any other country, for that matter. Besides, if a child got everything he wanted, bless me, Father, give me this, give me toys, give me candy, give, give me what I want, that's actually not even a blessing. If anything, that would be a curse. Well, there are many reactions, a lot of opinions. The reality, the reality is complex. Now, some people consider money to be a very personal matter. And yet, did you know, there are more passages on money and wealth and possessions in the Bible than on all passages on faith and repentance combined. In fact, more than on faith, repentance, and baptism combined. It's hundreds of passages. So, how we respond is important. Nothing diminishes our need to live responsibly. Here's what the Bible has to say. How does the Bible shed light on the crisis? in many ways, and I'd like to make seven suggestions on where we can study more. First, look at the financial crises in the Bible. You say, oh, 
They had inflation. Well, actually, there was inflation in ancient times, and you can even see some of that in the Bible. But that's getting outside the scope of this lesson. The, the situation that most replicates the conditions of the current financial crisis, I believe, are the famines. In the Old and New Testament, there are a number of famines. And so, uh, with starvation and desperation, people change. For example, there are famines in the book of Genesis. The most significant one is the one at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 41 to 47, in advance of which Joseph ended up as the number two guy in Egypt and was able to save Israel. In fact, was able to save people from all nations. The famine in the time of Joseph, or the famine in the time of Elisha, when Samaria was besieged, this is 2 Kings 6 and 7, it was so bad people were eating their children. Or how about the famine in first century Judea? Agabus the prophet talked about it in Acts 11, verses 28 to 30. It was a famine that afflicted not just the uh, Jewish inhabitants of Judea, but the Jewish Christians. They were not spared. And so Paul, in a motion of, of support and uh, solidarity, organizes a collection among the Gentile churches. We'll read about this in 2, Kings 8, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And he arranges for the money to go to the Jewish Christians in Judea. Well, look at the effect of famines in the Bible. These are testing times. They don't just drive up prices. They drive up the tension level. They strain relationships. They take away our comfort. They affect families. They reveal character. Another way the Bible sheds light on the crisis. I think we need to come to the insight that money is not the answer. We're all familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities or emptiness, emptiness. Ecclesiastes 5.10. New International Version says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Brothers, sisters, friends, we need to take this seriously. We'll never have money enough. And maybe you want more money, and it's not even necessarily materialism. Some of us just want more money because we're competitive. Well, if I earned this much last year, I need to do more this year. And it's not just for inflation. We're just competitive. We like to beat ourselves. We're not even competing with others. If you're competing with others, in Ecclesiastes 4.4, which is a fantastic passage, would apply. Here's another passage showing that money's not the answer. A feast is prepared for laughter. And wine makes life happy, and money is the answer for everything. That's Ecclesiastes 10.19 in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Money is the answer for everything. Any government that thinks, well, let's just throw money at the problem and we'll fix it, I think has to learn something. My purpose is not to give you a political or economic commentary. Just to point out Solomon's observation, when people think money is the answer for everything, that, that explanation really falls short. And besides, whose money? Where does the money come from? Governments cannot create wealth. They can only redistribute. They can take it from citizens. Let me give you one other passage, one that is very meaningful. And it's in Proverbs 30. Now, I think we all know Matthew 6, 11. In the Lord's Prayer, which I learned as a little boy, we asked uh, for the Lord to give us today our daily bread. Now, if you look at the New International Translation of Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9, we find this. Two things I ask of you, O Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. 
Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. Well, the wise man says there are two dangers here. There is a danger in being rich. If we have too much, we may not see our need for the Lord. But there's an opposite danger in poverty, and that is we may rationalize any kind of behavior, poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. The truth is the Bible doesn't assign virtue to poverty or even necessarily assign vice to riches, though it's probably more dangerous, to be honest, to be rich than poor, biblically speaking. So what should we do? Well, here's the principle. It's a principle of moderation. Not going to the extremes, but asking God for our daily bread. Money is not the answer. Number three, we need to balance hard work with generous liberality. We can't just live at an inflated standard of living, high on the hog. The bubble cannot continue to expand. We have to work. Value comes when work is put in. Industry is a biblical principle. We need to pull our weight. Second Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says to the Thessalonians, In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. That's in the Christian Standard Bible. If he isn't willing to work, he shouldn't eat. This is not at all to say that, that someone who's unable to work or absolutely unable to find work uh, should starve to death. That would contradict other biblical principles. But we've got to be willing to work. Am I a hard worker? Am I harder on others than I am on myself? Do I expect them to pull their weight while I'm riding for free? That's not right. And yet we have the balancing principle. Jesus, after all, told us to be kind to the needy, just as our Father in Heaven is kind. In fact, He's kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, Luke 6. Generosity is so important. It's not all about work. And in challenging times, we can be looking for opportunities to help those who are legitimately in dire straits. We've got to keep giving. Some, some people think, well, oh, I've lost a lot of my value, or I've, I've, I've lost my job, and I don't have the income I had before. 2 Corinthians 8, 2. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I think that's a very familiar passage. It's commending the Macedonians, Gentile Christians who were willing to give, even though they were poor, they were willing to give in order to alleviate suffering back in Judea among the Jewish Christians. You know, that is so important, that even when things are hard, we don't harden our heart. We don't tighten our fist. Of course, we shouldn't be giving under compulsion, But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be generous. I have a couple of friends who are tax lawyers. And these guys see a lot. And they tell me a few things. For example, when people have a lot of money, these are some of the richer clients, money tends to accentuate or exaggerate their basic personality and character. That is, if someone is uh, stingy and he doesn't give much to the poor, even though he has all that money, it doesn't make them any happier. Whereas if someone is liberal, giving freely, uh, he's, a, he's a happy man. 
Another observation they've made is this. And it doesn't even really matter whether someone is one kind of Christian or believer or Jew or Muslim or even an atheist. But in general, the more people give away of their income, the more things go their way. Now, let's not take that too far because it's not a, a mechanical thing. You can't just say, well, I'll give all my income over here and then God will give it back to me. It doesn't really work that way. That Jesus never promised that. But my friends, the tax lawyers have observed that those who are generous, who give a significant percentage of their income away, and I don't mean just a few percent, I mean a significant percent, it, life seems to go the right way. It's like there's a natural principle in effect. And I believe in that. And so that's the third principle. Third principle is that we need to uh, combine or balance hard work with generosity. Generosity, generous liberality. Are you doing that? Or have you pulled back? You, because if you pull back, then, then uh, presumably you're supporting your local church. You pull back, now the church is less able to help those who are needy. And that's a very legitimate function of money. Number four, the Bible shows us we should live responsibly. Oh, there are so many passages on this. I, I may just refer to one in passing. Matthew 25, we have the parable of the talents. Uh, these three men who are given different amounts of uh, of money, actually a talent is a weight, it's a unit of money, uh, an amount of money. And uh, what God was looking for was return on his investment. Uh, the, the, the man with five who earned five more was not compared to the one who had ten and got ten more. No, he was commended the same because there was return on the investment. The only one who was in trouble was the one who buried what he was given in the ground. You see, we are only stewards. When I was a single man, and I did not own a car, I would often borrow someone's vehicle. I remember when I was in graduate school, I borrowed vehicles a lot. And I tried to return those vehicles not only filled with fuel, they were gassed up, even if they weren't full when I got them, they were when I returned them. But I also tried to return them clean. Why is that? Because, well, I wanted the guy to say yes next time. Yes, I'll, anytime I'll lend it to you. But I wanted to return it in better condition than I received it because I'm a steward. I want to be responsible. It's not mine. I have no right to treat it badly. There's a responsibility there. And we are stewards. We don't own anything. First Timothy 6 says we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out. Anything we have in this world is on loan. So we've got to live responsibly as stewards of God's gifts. Number five, repeatedly, the Bible warns us to watch out for materialism. In the New Testament, the word normally translated greed is pleonexia. Pleonexia literally means grabbing for more. Always grabbing for more. This, in fact, was the sin of Sodom. You'd say, Sodom? I thought their sin was sodomy. Well, that was more a manifestation of what was going on. The Bible actually identifies their central sin as materialism. How do I know? Well, there's a commentary in Ezekiel 16. I'd like to read verses 49 and 50. And here, the prophet Ezekiel is challenging the kingdom of Judah because they were failing to learn an historical lesson from the ancient cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We read in verse 49. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, 
excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty, and they did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Yes, Sodom and Gomorrah did some things that were abominable, but what does this come from? What were the conditions that led to this? Well, there's an arrogance. There, it says they were overfed. They were in a state of prosperity and ease, prosperous ease. And they didn't help the poor and the needy. And so this is one of the first impacts of materialism, a lack of care for our fellow man. It's a very serious thing. You see, many people view religion and Christianity in particular as a ticket to financial prosperity. Well, didn't Paul tell Timothy that? Some people look at godliness as basically a vehicle for financial gain. And yet the Lord never promised financial prosperity. New covenant is not about the things that we get. Not that God doesn't love us and want to bless us. But what did Jesus actually say in Matthew 6? Verse 33 is one of the many famous verses in that chapter where the Lord said, Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. Well, isn't that a promise that if we put God first, we'll get all the things we want? Well, no, it's not. Firstly, in the context of Matthew six twenty-five to 34, the other things that will be given are food, drink, and clothing. It doesn't even mention shelter in that passage. Food, drink, and clothing. And yet, as we know, there are many parts of the world where seeking first the kingdom will not give us food and drink and clothing. In fact, it'll, it'll take us to prison. Every year, hundreds of people are martyred for their faith in Christ. In many countries, conversion brings a death penalty. And it's not just in the Muslim world. And there are many parts where that is sad the fact, even places like India. For years now. In fact, I believe last year, in 2008, the going price on a preacher's head was $250. That is, if you would kill a preacher, particularly in the eastern Indian state of Orissa, uh, you would be awarded $250. Hundreds, hundreds of people have been killed. See, the Lord never promised financial prosperity. Jesus is giving us a generalization. God takes care of the birds. He takes care of the lilies. He'll take care of us. But it's on our basic needs. And even then, it's a generalization because there's some exceptions. He certainly never said, seek me first and you'll get a new car and you'll have a big house and lots of nice clothes. That, that is nothing at all like the Spirit of Christ. But what do we do? We tend... Particularly, and I'm speaking especially to those in Western culture, uh, and this includes the United States and Canada. What we do is we spend money we don't have. Well, how can you spend money you don't have? Well, it's called credit. I would say this is one of the definitions of insanity. Let's spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need. In fact, let's spend money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people who don't even care about us anyway. And that, in a way, is a, a miniature, uh, compact description of the vicious cycle of materialism. What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible doesn't say never loan, nor does it say never lend. But there are some observations we find in the book of Proverbs. And there are two of them in Proverbs 22. Let's begin in verse 7. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. 
Now, that's not a passage saying that you can't have any debt. Oh, yeah, I know. Romans 13.8, we don't want to let debt remain outstanding. But there's good debt. There's bad debt. Uh, but the fact is, if we're in a state of servitude, that is, we are like slaves to the lender, uh, that's not a happy situation. The rich rule over the poor. The borrower is servant to the lender. In the United States, the average house has, household has several credit cards. And I don't know what the average amount of debt is. I know last year I saw a figure around seven or $8,000. Uh, that, that's a lot of household debt. And many people I've talked to, and this has shocked me, um, even people who are disciples of Jesus Christ, I asked them about their debt, and they've spent many, uh, they've spent many dollars for things that they didn't really need, and they put it on credit card. Even worse is to buy essentials on credit card. Because then it's like you pay twice. You, you pay, and then you have to pay the interest later on. Credit cards are very, very problematic. And I would encourage you, I'm no financial advisor, but I would keep the number of credit cards to an absolute minimum, like one or maybe zero. If you're going to use a credit card, always pay it off as fast as you can. Don't let those companies get a penny of your hard-earned money. Now, one other passage in that same chapter, Proverbs 22, and I like to read verses 26 and 27 from the Christian Standard Bible again. Don't be one of those who enter agreements, who put up security for loans. If you have no money to pay, even your bed will be taken from under you. Wow, what a challenge. When we put our signature to certain agreements, if we're unwise, well, they may not take our bed. They may take your house. They may take your car. They may take everything you have. So we must be very wise, very circumspect. Watch out for materialism. And one other comment on this. People are so much more important than things. We've got to value relationships. First Timothy 6 is the chapter to turn to. But what's more valuable? People or things? Do we use things and love people? Or do we love things and use people? That is the result of materialism. That is the result of consumerism in our society. I'll just ask... Is our lifestyle different to the lifestyle of our neighbors? If we're Christians, are our spending patterns the same? Sadly, the experts say, yep, they're almost exactly the same. Same pattern of expenses on leisure, on recreation, on essential things, on luxury items. Even the amount of money given away to charities is not really that different. But it should be, certainly Followers of Christ should resemble Jesus. Jesus was willing to give and give. He who was poor, uh, was rich, became poor for our sakes. Okay. There's a sixth principle. And that's the principle of contentment. In Philippians 4.11, Paul is thanking the Philippians for their financial support. And he makes this comment that he's learned the secret of being content in whatever financial situation he finds himself whether he has plenty or whether he's in want. I mean, he's learned to adjust and, and to be content, whether in a prison cell, as he was when he wrote Philippians, or uh, simply uh, very deprived of the basic necessities of life, or at the other end of the register, uh, having all he needs. There's no virtue in being poor. There's no uh, vice in being rich. Uh, 
Some people think that that's not what the Bible says. The early church was not socialistic or communistic. It didn't make rules about the money. No one was forced to, to, to sell things and give money to the church. Read Acts 5. That, that becomes quite clear. I, I only mention that because some Christians think that, well, they were communistic. Everyone, that no one owned private property. That's not at all true. And this is not uh, an endorsement of capitalism. I'm simply saying you won't find an economic system uh, uh, that, was, uh, that, that the church lived by in the New Testament. It's simply not there. People rather gave from their heart. Now, Paul was content. Some of you listening to this podcast are anxious. And I know that because I've been talking to a lot of people lately. And you've lost a lot. And for some of you, you've lost money that you've been saving. Maybe it was money in a stock market. I mean, I even, we started saving for retirement just a few years ago, and I looked at our fund only once last year. I looked at it, and boy, it had, it had lost, <laughs> I don't know, 40 or 50% of the value. The kids' college fund, our, our house is worth less than it was before. On paper, we've lost a lot of money. But you know, we haven't really lost. It's, it's not like anyone walked into the house and took my bed. It's not that one of the children was taken to slavery or someone removed all of our windows at night. And the, all that was lost was on paper. So we can be anxious, but there's no need to be anxious. There's a need, rather, to be content, to learn that secret of contentment that Paul had. Just think of Zimbabwe. Think of Liberia. A little bit over a year ago, I had the privilege of speaking in the West African nation of Liberia. And the preacher in the church is a brilliant man. He's not able to be supported by the church. There just isn't enough capital for that. He works as a lawyer. And I remember as, we, as I asked him a question, is there electricity? I mean, do, is there just regular electric service in, in any of the homes of the church? Do you, you have it? He said, no, I don't have it. A couple hundred people. No, no, none of us has electricity. No electricity. I remember when I was in West Africa, I spoke in the city hall. It's, it was actually a pretty fine building there in Liberia, there was a wire running diagonally above the seats. There are, I don't know, four or five hundred seats. And as I recall, hanging from that wire, there were three light bulbs. And that was it. You know, I don't know how badly off you are, but compared to most of the world, most who listen to this, we're not that bad, bad off. It's going to be okay. And if you're overreacting, calm down. Let's get back to good spiritual daily habits, and this will tend to calm the nerves. Got to be content. Got to watch out for materialism. Realize we're just stewards. We weren't going to take this with us anyway. Uh, we need to, to get wisdom and perspective from the Bible. The Bible gives us so much help in this area. We need to live responsibly. We need to uh, study uh, what the scriptures actually say. But I've got one more point. And I think this is huge. And it's about humility. Now, I know this uh, passage in Deuteronomy 8, we'll look at, refers to the Old Covenant, which was, after all, much more physical than, and material than, than today. It doesn't apply to us today directly. Still, there are some principles to learn. So please listen. And I'll begin in Deuteronomy 8, verse 6. So, keep the commands of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and fearing Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams of water, springs and deep water sources, flowing in both valleys and hills, a land of wheat, farley, vines, figs, and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without shortage, 
where you will lack nothing, a land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you will mine copper. When you eat and are full, you will praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Now comes the warning. Be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his command, the ordinances and statutes I am giving you today. When you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold multiply and everything else you have increases, be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought water out of the flint-like rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers had not known in order to humble and test you so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God who gives you the power to gain wealth. In order to confirm his covenant, he swore to your fathers as it is today. The Lord himself gives us the ability to make wealth. We should be very humble in the presence of our maker. I'd like to read an excerpt from a book by an Irish Christian. This brother's name is Jim McGuigan. And he's challenging this idea, the modern pride, the, the idea that we can be self-made men, self-made women. Listen, here's a businessman who thinks he's self-made. He was taught in a school he didn't found. He lives under a democracy he didn't set up. He's part of a free enterprise system he didn't establish. He drives cars he didn't make on roads he couldn't build, uses phones he doesn't understand, sends mail he doesn't deliver, flies in planes he can't pilot. He is enabled to succeed by banks, employees, and the public. Oh, aside from all that, uh, he's self-made. Here's a self-made farmer who learned farming from those he didn't teach, sows seed he didn't make, depends on sunshine, rain, and good land, which he didn't create, feeds the land minerals he didn't manufacture, and sells his produce to the public. Aside from all that, he's self-made. Here's a self-made Israelite. Here's a self-made disciple of Christ. Here's a self-made preacher. Here's a self-made teacher of philosophy. Here's a self-made church. McGuigan challenges us, and rightly so. And Paul said something very similar to the Corinthians. What do you have that you didn't receive? And so the Bible requires us to be humble. As it says in Proverbs 4, verse 23, Above all else, guard your heart. Why guard your heart? Because it's the wellspring of life. It's the wellspring of life. So the Bible sheds tremendous light on this crisis. Tremendous light. As we study the financial crisis, realize that money is not the answer. We balance hard work with generous liberality. We live responsibly. Beware materialism. We've got to give up this American dream and exchange it for the dream of Jesus Christ. To be content and humble. Well, last, why should we talk about the crisis? Well, we should talk. This is not a taboo area. People may feel it's, it's, it's a sensitive subject. But you know, people are feeling pressure. And, and for many men and women, the chance to talk about it with someone, someone who cares enough to ask, will be therapeutic. In the same way, it's wise to talk to our children from time to time about money. 
your children still live at home, don't let it all be one big secret, one big mystery. Let them understand. Let them benefit from your wisdom. Here's some questions that I have to ask myself about money. First, how did I get it? Second, what am I doing with it? Third, how is it affecting me? How did I get it? Through exploitation? Uh, legally? Ethically? How did we get our money? Next, what are we doing with it? Is it all being used for our own family, our own situation, our own comfort? Or are we giving away a generous portion to others, as the scriptures teach? And third, how is money affecting me? Is it distraction? Is it a distraction? Is it enslaving me? Is it causing me to compromise my Christian commitment? For example, some people, in order to float a, a, a pretty grandiose lifestyle, have to work long hours. Maybe have to work uh, more than one job. And I'm not criticizing those who have no choice for medical reasons or other. But some people have to work like madmen because they need so much money to pay their mortgage. Uh, what is this? Who told us we have to live that way? No. We need first to ask ourselves questions. But then let's ask each other questions. How is the crisis affecting you? Maybe in the fellowship at church. Maybe at work tomorrow. Maybe you just send an email. You make a phone call to a friend or someone you're reaching out to. Believe me, people are, are touched by this. They do care. How's the crisis affecting you? How are you handling things? I've asked a lot of brothers, and I'm so glad I did, because I wouldn't have known. I'm not sure they would have told me how hard it's been. I've asked others also, well, do you have any input for me? I mean, I, I'm not naturally a businessman. I'm, uh, I, mean, I was a preacher for 20 years, and now I, I preach and teach, and uh, I've been independent for a while. I, I don't... Any business sense I have, I'm getting it from other people. I'm always asking for counsel. Is this a good way to spend money? Should I do this now or should I wait? I think if we're wise, we should identify people near us who can give us good counsel. We do need to talk about this financial crisis. You know, in the past, people wouldn't talk about mental health. Mental health, I mean, let's go back in the 1800s. If there was a concern, you could be committed. I mean, you could be... Taken away. Men had their wives institutionalized. Just charge them with uh, mental instability. Now, it's gone so far the other way. People talk very freely about mental health and, and medications. People with physical handicaps were often uh, spirited away and kept out of the public eye. Now we watch uh, TV programs on medical marvels and, and amazing uh, operations and surgeries. We're more comfortable talking about learning disabilities. There's a greater climate of openness. Surely this should extend to talking about money. This is a ripe time. We need to care enough to ask. People need you and me to ask them. So let's talk about it. It's a great opportunity to connect, to get people to open up and to meet them authentically and to minister in a place where it hurts. I remember when we lost our jobs, my wife and I both lost our jobs in 2003. And it was a time where, okay, we asked others for direction for sure. But it was also a time where we started to pray a little bit more because uh, up until that point, Vicky and I had never prayed much about money. I mean, we prayed every day, but didn't really think, why, why would we need to pray about money? Everything's going to be okay. But when you don't have a job and you don't know where the, what you're going to do and you're weighing your options and you want to make good decisions and have good boundaries, you pray. In the same way, 
that we became more dependent on God, I think for many people right now, this can be a golden opportunity, an opportunity to open up to spiritual things, to open up to Jesus Christ. It was a good effect. It had a good effect on us when we lost our jobs. I I think good came out of that. So let's turn to God and study the scriptures and develop biblical conviction. Now, with this uh, lesson, I've given also a link with all the notes. So you can see, I know I talk fast sometimes. Uh, Not that often. But uh, there are a lot of notes. But it includes some further study suggestions. For example, comparing the lives of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 12 to 19. We see the contrast between the life of someone who was swayed by materialism, that's Lot, with one who was more rooted in the word. If we're involved in some unwise commitments, some unwise financial arrangements, Proverbs 6, verse 1 to 5, talks about getting released. 2 Chronicles 25, 5 to 10, another golden passage. I would encourage you to go back and look at the three famines I referenced, but there are many more. And just look how this affects people and what, uh, how it's an opportunity for godly men and women to shine amid such circumstances. If you want to do a more general study, I think the best Old Testament book is Proverbs. There are more than 30 passages, uh, probably even more than that, but there are 30 that I can find quickly on money and wealth in the book of Proverbs. And the New Testament, the, the author to focus on is Luke, especially in the Gospel of Luke, but also in part two, that is the book of Acts. Again, you'll find more than 30 passages on money. Uh, also in the notes, I recommend three books on the topic uh, outside the Bible, which are excellent. And so, in conclusion, let's keep studying the Bible. Let's get our conviction from the Scriptures. But also, let's talk about this. This is a golden opportunity to connect with others and to show them that Jesus Christ cares about the lives of everyone on the planet. We hope you enjoyed Douglas' teaching on current issues. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas' website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas' teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.